Today's message is best considered as the epilogue to last week's sermon about Noah's Ark. Now, uh, small plug here. We are exceedingly grateful to Gary Fraser. Oh, hi, Gary. Uh, who makes these services available online throughout the week. You can view the full service on our YouTube channel or on our website and, uh, and social media. There, Gary has it broken down into the liturgical elements in case you just want to watch the backpack blessing again or hear the sermon or hear the music or a prayer. Apparently, I did not consent to this. But apparently, we've also got the sermons on a podcast you can listen to. This was news to me. I invite you to speak to Gary Fraser. He's at the back right now checking some sound system stuff. Uh, if you want more information about all these neat ways to access our worship services. Anyway, back to the message. If the presumed goal of the flood had been to wipe the slate of creation clean to wash evil off the face of the earth, then it is clear that allowing even a handful of humans to survive undermined its success. It's not like Noah had any kind of change of heart. If you read on in their story, it's pretty clear that what they had was likely heaping doses of trauma and survivor's guilt like survivors of the Titanic, but on a global scale. Other than a massive hit to population numbers, nothing on Earth or in the human heart changed, not in the long term. The change, I suggested, was in God's own heart. At the beginning of the story, God is grieved in God's heart for ever having created human beings, wicked things that they were. By the end of the story, God has learned that wiping them out isn't actually the solution. So pronounced was this discovery for God that God put a sign, a divine post-it note in the sky, the bow without the arrow, the weapon of war and destruction, hung up, retired, pulled from use. Whenever it rains and the rainbow is visible, God reminds God's self, no, no, we're not doing that again. Never again will we destroy creation with a flood. Which means, back to the drawing board, right? If you really take a read of the book of Genesis, which I strongly encourage you do, specifically those first 12 chapters, you'll find that God is continually experimenting and reworking how God chooses to work in the world. In the first two to three chapters, you find God's original plan. I'm going to work with all of humanity, God said. They can eat the stuff that grows in the Garden of Eden. They can name the animals that I create. And together, we can take care of the earth. It's going to be great. Spoiler. It was not great. Kind of a disaster. Be fruitful and multiply, God said. But within a generation, we've got brothers killing each other. And it goes downhill from there. Oh, humanity multiplied all right and filled the earth with evil. Fine, 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 God thinks. Let's try this again then. Cue last week's flood story of Genesis chapters 6 through 9. God decides that instead of trying to work with all of humanity, 
God would work with one family, Noah and his descendants, wipe everyone else out and start over. The problem is that Noah and his family are still human, full of free will and inclined to evil since birth. That's just how humans roll. After the ark docks, God tells Noah's family to go out and once again fill the earth, a fresh start. God would try working with all of humanity again. But rather than spreading out, the people all stayed in one place. And rather than filling the face of the earth, they built a skyscraper to heaven instead because they wanted to be like God. This is only Genesis 11, folks. In less than a dozen chapters, you see God going back to the drawing board again and again and again. Humanity really can be dumb as a bag of rocks. So God topples their Babel Tower, confuses their languages, and then disperses them across the land. Back to the drawing board again. Enter Abram and Sarai. Now, some scholars have come to refer to Genesis chapter 12 as the great shift. It is less catchy, but I like to refer to it as the most important moment in all of scripture that gives meaning to every other moment that comes after it. It's fine. It'll catch on, I'm sure. I cannot overemphasize how important this moment between God and Abram and Sarai is. It is the absolute linchpin, not just for the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, but for the New Testament too. Jesus, this is a bit of a foreshadow, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant, this promise between Abraham and Sarah and God. So kindly, please pay attention. There are many things that make this story stand out from everything that had come before it in Genesis. But for today, I only want to focus on one. Up to this point, God's attempts to partner with humanity in any sustainable way had been, frankly, a flop. When God came to Abram and Sarai, God tried something different. God created a pact, a promise, a treatise, a covenant, and pre presented it to this couple. I will be your God... You will be my people. I will give you descendants. I will give land to your descendants. And I will bless you. And through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. God would be in relationship with all people through this family. Through Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. They would become the conduit through which God's blessing would be distributed to all humanity. This was a new thing. This hadn't been tried before, this kind of relationship. Abraham and Sarah would be agents of blessing. Understanding this is critical. We need to get a few things straight, though, about uh, this concept of blessing. First of all, it was being unconditionally given to Abraham and Sarah... They did nothing to earn or deserve it. Neither did their descendants, I assure you. But if you pay attention to the remainder of Genesis, more specifically through Exodus and the books that follow, the covenant is conditionally kept. 
Let me say that together. Unconditionally given, conditionally kept. That is, they are expected to continue to function as channels of God's blessing to all the nations. It's not meant for them to hang on to. They are conduits, not containers of blessing. This is important because I worry sometimes that for a lot of people there's a confusion, a mixing up of blessing and privilege. Let that simmer for a second. Beautiful holiday on the beach. Hashtag blessed. Look at my car and my clothes, my job, my family. Hashtag blessed. But in the history of our faith, that's not what a blessing is. A blessing is meant to be put to work. A blessing rolls up its sleeves. If you take your blessing and you hang on to it for yourself and maybe only the people immediately around you, if you take your blessing and all it is to you is a neat post on social media with a cute filter, that's no longer a blessing. Not in this context. That becomes something else entirely. In some instances, it can border on idolatry, even hoarding. Faithfulness is using our lives, using our resources, using our gifts, using our talents, our finances, in ways that bless others, that make the world better for others, that show glimmers of God's goodness and faithfulness and grace and love to and for others. That is mind, the mind-bending power of this covenant. Blessed to be a blessing. So it's not that God loves Abraham and Sarah more than anyone else. It's not that God loves their descendants more than anyone else. It's that they were given, uh, or rather they were chosen to bear the responsibility of being a channel of God's love for the world. Chosenness comes with responsibility. Blessing comes with responsibility. Throughout scripture, you will see that it is when the people of God forget or neglect this responsibility that things go badly. Walter Brueggemann, one of the greatest biblical scholars of our time, writes of this moment between Abraham and God, says, the promise is concluded by what seems to be a commissioning. The well-being of Israel carried potential for the well-being of other nations. Israel is never permitted to live in a vacuum it must always live with, for, and among others. The barren ones, so Abraham and Sarah, are now mandated for the needs of others. Different from Adam and Eve, different from Noah and his family. This new thing that God was doing with Abraham and Sarah was not singling them out or pulling them out of society to be lofty and held above others, but rather it was to drive them deeper into community, to be agents of grace. That's what it means to be God's people, church. That's what it means to be faithful. So the question for them and for us today as inheritors of this promise, this covenant, is this. And I hope you leave today pondering this question. Is my faith 
leading me to be a blessing to others? Am I holding on to my things? Am I acting like a container, self-contained, hashtag blessed? Or am I a conduit, putting the gifts of my life, the blessings to work for the benefit of the world by the grace of God? Think of every single thing that you are grateful for. Make a list. Check it twice. And then ask yourself, are these things, these experiences, these opportunities, these talents, these fortunes, these relationships, are they being put to work to bless others? Who benefits because of the blessings that I have in my life? Blessed to be a blessing. This promise, the covenant of Genesis 12, reveals the creative power of God and, and the truth that we have been called into partnership with God. And that is especially challenging for those of you, sometimes I'm part of this group too, I'll be honest. This is especially challenging for the if you want it done right, do it yourself types. Sorry because it's just not how God works, and it's not how the kingdom works. Repeatedly, working with people, working with humanity, has been disaster after disaster, one after the other, consecutively in a row, to quote David Rose. But God is convinced, because it is who God is, that it is only in relationship that the brokenness of the world will be healed that all will be blessed, and we can truly live in that healing center of the world. It's not the most efficient way. Sorry, but it is the only way. It is messy, it is frustrating and slow, and it's not always fiscally sound, but it is the only way God chooses to bless the world, through partnership with broken human beings like you and like me. Making sandwiches for Evangel Hall. Giving our time to serve at Curse Street Mission. Befriending someone who looks lonely or new. Sharing our things. Encouraging someone to try something new and letting them do just that rather than stepping in to take over. Taking time to listen to people's hurt and pain without jumping to problem solving. These are things even our children can do when they go to school. Simple, slow, relationship-building stuff. This is how God chooses to bless the world in partnership with each one of us. A blessing when used faithfully is never held. It's always passed along. Genesis 12 is the turning point in the story, which we will continue to unpack over the coming weeks and months in worship. And its truth is no less important today in 2022. I will be your God. You will be my people. Through you, Knox Oakville, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so consider this as we prepare to celebrate the sacrament of baptism. Because in baptism, we see the renewal of this promise between God and the world that God so loves. Another little one is named and claimed, blessed to be a blessing in this world, 
Faith is put to work. Hope abounds. And love wins. In the end, it always does. Because the greatest of these is love. To God be all the glory. Amen.